welcome to the Gospel in Lagos, the sermon podcast of City Church Lagos. We hope this sermon answers the doubts or questions that you have about the Gospel, its relevance to your life, and the ever-evolving culture around us. Our vision is to see the City of Lagos and beyond renewed by the Gospel, and to make that happen, we need your support. You can do this by rating this podcast, following us, and giving through the Give tab on our website, citychurchlagos.com. Thank you for your generosity. We pray this sermon impacts you positively with the gospel. The Lord said to Moses and Aaron in Egypt, This month is to be for you the first month, the first month of your year. Tell the whole community of Israel that on the 10th of this month, each man is to take a lamb for his family, one for each household. If any household is too small for a whole lamb, they must share one with their nearest neighbor, having taken into account the number of people there are. You are to determine the amount of lamb needed in accordance with what each person will eat. The animals you choose must be year-old males without defect, and you may take them from the sheep or the goats. Take care of them until the 14th day of the month, when all the members of the community of Israel must slaughter them at twilight. Then they are to take some of the blood and put it on the sides and tops of the door frames of the houses where they eat the lambs. That same night, they are to eat the meat roasted over the fire, along with bitter herbs and bread made without yeast. Do not eat the meat raw or boiled in water, but roast it over a fire with the head, legs, and internal organs. Do not leave any of it till morning. If some is left till morning, you must burn it. This is how you are to eat it. With your cloak tucked into your belt, your sandals on your feet, and your staff in your hand. Eat it in haste. It is the Lord's Passover. On that same night, I will pass through Egypt and strike down every firstborn of both people and animals. And I will bring judgment on all the gods of Egypt. I am the Lord. The blood will be a sign for you on the houses where you are. And when I see the blood, I will pass over you. No destructive plague will touch you when I strike Egypt. Then Moses summoned all the elders of Israel and said to them, Go at once and select the animals for your families and slaughter the Passover lamb. Take a bunch of hyssop, dip it into the blood in the basin and put some of the blood on the top and on both sides of the doorframe. None of you shall go out of the door of your house until morning, when the Lord 
goes through the land to strike down the Egyptians, he will see the blood on the top and sides of the doorframe and will pass over that doorway. And he will not permit the destroyer to enter your houses and strike you down. Obey these instructions as a lasting ordinance for you and your descendants when you enter the land that the Lord will give you as he promised. Observe this ceremony. And when your children ask you, what does this ceremony mean to you? Then tell them, it is the Passover sacrifice to the Lord who passed over the houses of the Israelites in Egypt and spared our homes when he struck down the Egyptians. Then the people bowed down and worshipped. The Israelites did just what the Lord commanded Moses and Aaron. At midnight, the Lord struck down all the firstborn in Egypt, from the firstborn of Pharaoh who sat on the throne, to the firstborn of the prisoner who was in the dungeon, and the firstborn of all the livestock as well. Pharaoh and all his officials and all the Egyptians got up during the night, and there was loud wailing in Egypt, for there was not a house without someone dead. During the night, Pharaoh summoned Moses and Aaron and said, Up, leave my people. You and the Israelites go. Worship the Lord as you have requested. This is the word of the Lord. My wife and I are very different. Um, those of you who know us know this very well. Um, I'm an introvert, for one. She's an extrovert. Our marriage is one of those marriages where if you looked at us from the outside, you say, why are these two people together? And maybe some of you have asked that question, actually. <laughs> and we love each other. We love each other a lot. That's all you need to know. But one of the ways our differences reveals itself is in how we watch movies. In fact, as a rule, we sort of don't watch movies together. We've started trying. Uh, the last one we tried, um, what's that one with Zoe Saldana on, on Netflix? Um, we watched season one. We watched, we watched the very, very first episode. And as happens every time we watch a movie together, she slept off. But that's not, that's not the reason why we don't watch movies together mostly. The reason why we don't watch movies together is because we have different viewing approaches to movies. And so when we, started, when we got married and we started watching movies together, um, I like a certain type of movie. My wife likes another type of movie. That's problem number one. But the main problem is that my wife always wanted to know what would happen at the end. 
Actually, not even at the end end, like what is going to happen in the next two minutes. When things get a little bit charged, she wants to fast forward and say, I, I can't deal with this suspense. I want to find out what is going on. And as a very good movie watcher and husband, I tell her, no, you can't do that. And so what used to happen was she would say, okay, we sort of fight over the mouse because we're watching on a laptop in her one-bedroom house that we're living. And then I would stand up, as happens every movie we've ever watched in our lives together. I always go to the toilet to pee. And when I go to the toilet, she uses that opportunity to fast forward and to find out what has happened in the movie. And I really don't like that a lot. I don't like that a lot because I want to know what is coming next. What's going to happen? I want to be surprised. I want to be, you know, I want to be in the moment as the movie is happening. But the truth is that sometimes you can't always do that. Sometimes you know the story. In fact, I, I think now this is where my wife has sort of influenced me that a good story is not so much one where you don't know the ending. A good story is one where you know the ending but still want to find out what has happened. And maybe there are some of us here today who have the same approach as I do to movie watching where it's like, I already know the end. Why do I have to go through this again? Jesus died. That's why we're here. We just watched a snippet from the Passion of the Christ about it. Can we just move on to the next thing? Jesus rose again. Do we have to come on Sunday to that? Why can't we do something else? It is because the movie is so good that we have to watch it again. And like every good movie, when you watch it again, you always find something that you have missed. In fact, the, the best movies, I almost said the goodest, the, the, the best movies are the movies where they don't just tell you what is happening. You so much identify with what is going on in the movie that it feels like this movie is telling the story of your life. I think that's what the story we have watched, we all know, we have been hearing about, and we're still going to hear about today is about this story is so good that you can identify with it. And I pray that as we look at this story again, as we watch this movie again, that you don't just keep on your seats till the end, but that you see that this story is very much about you, about what God has done for you. And that you see that this story actually reorients your life and defines everything about you. Can I ask that we pray? Lord, there are no surprises here. We can pray because you died and you rose. So we already know that that has happened. But Lord, sometimes there is a disconnect between what we already know, Lord, and where we are at, or what we already know and how we are feeling. So we ask, Lord, that you would open our eyes at this very instant and in this very moment. Cause us, Lord, to see something, Lord, that we've never seen before. If there's anyone here who doesn't know Jesus, Lord, we pray that you wake them up, Lord, from their slumber. Open their blinded eyes to see. And Lord, if there are those of us who we are here, Lord, and, and we sort of lost the wonder of the cross where the story is just the story. It's, it's just a story. It's not the story of our lives. Lord, we pray that you open our eyes again. 
Lord, do such a work in our hearts, oh God, this morning, that we don't just go away emotional. We don't just go away, Lord, feeling child, Lord, but we go away knowing that this is the story that reorients our lives and our world this morning. Let your people hear a better sermon than the one being preached. In Jesus' name we pray. So four things I want us to see from this story here today. And just heads up, we're looking at an Old Testament story. And some of you are like, that is so not typical. True. But you see, sometimes you also learn more about the people you know best by looking at their old pictures. Who likes to do that? You like to look at Pastor Femi's old pictures to see, oh, this is sort of how he became the person he has become. now. so we're looking at an old picture this morning. And four things I want us to see this morning. Salvation is external. Salvation's instrument is unique. Salvation requires a costly substitute. And salvation is life-altering. Those four things we'll look at very briefly this morning. Salvation is external. If you don't know the story, the story so far is that God's people have been in bondage. They've been in bondage in Egypt. They didn't go there as slaves. They went there sort of on a jackpot scheme. One person who was there filed for all of them to come. And so all of them have been living there for a number of years now. And then they get there and things don't quite go according to plan. Right? They become so much. And Pharaoh has this dream of building a really great empire, building a really great kingdom. And he sort of recruits all of them to begin to work for him. But he's not paying them. He's using them as slaves. And as you can imagine, they don't like that. Everything isn't going well for them because their life is so defined and reoriented about this fact of being slaves that they sort of don't have any time for anything else. But it's not just that they are working hard. It's that relationships between them are broken. Things are down between them as a people. In fact, we get that sense in chapter 2, if you know the story well, that there was a time where Moses, who we later see in this story, before he becomes God's rescuer, finds two people fighting against each other. He's telling them, guys, aren't you brothers? Why are you fighting? And you can sort of look at that story as what was symptomatic of what was wrong with the people of God, that they were broken in their relationship with one another. They were broken in their relationship with the system. There was so much hardship around and things weren't working out well. And God determines that he's going to rescue them. In fact, the whole story from chapter 3 up until this moment in time is that God decides he's going to save his people and rescue his people. And so God shows Pharaoh certain signs and he's trying to grab his attention. And it begins by turning the, their source of water, their public water system into blood. The river now becomes blood. He sends frogs, he sends flies, he sends gnats, he kills their livestock, he sends birds, hail, locusts to destroy their plants. And then he sends darkness and he's hoping all this well that sort of Pharaoh will get the picture and get the message and he will let the people of God go. But Pharaoh at every point in time, like the hard-hearted person he is, he is, he determines, no, I'm not going to let them go. He says, God, please sort of, Take this thing away and and I'll obey you. But when God takes the punishment away, when God takes the plague away, he doesn't obey God. He hardens his heart and he continues to hold the people of God in bondage. And so God decides this last plague is going to be the definitive act of judgment where he's going to rescue his people by his own arm and release them and bring them out of the bondage that they're in. 
And I think there's already stuff for us to pause about and reflect on here. Because you see, friends, what you think the problem is will determine the kind of solution that you think is required. What you think the problem is will determine the kind of solution that you think is required. So if you think the problem was many economic, Pharaoh wasn't paying the people of God enough. He wasn't rewarding them for their wages. I said, oh, we need to institute a new structural adjustment program that will sort of let these people go. Or Emifele of Egypt, make sure that you institute a new CBM policy that will serve these people so that they can be strengthened economically and they will no longer suffer hardship. If you think the problem was political, you'll have said, oh, we need a new constitution that allows for a rotational presidency so that it's not just Pharaoh who is sitting at the helm of affairs and the children of Israel are also represented in the seats of power so that they can make laws that will be useful for them and they'll be represented in government as well. If you think the problem was legal and that there weren't laws that were defining the working hours, you say, oh, we need to negotiate with NLC or, or we need to make sure that the government listens to NLC so that the policies that they are recommending will allow for the slaves to flourish and everything will be balanced. Friends, what you think the problem is will determine the kind of solution you recommend. Is it political? Is it economic? Is it legal? If history has taught us anything about human beings, it is that our problems are not fundamentally political or economic or legal or social. Our problems are deeply spiritual. We know this. In fact, we know of people who were themselves slaves and who were agitating against those in power, who were oppressing them. And when they themselves get into the corridors of power, they become the people who oppress their own people as well. We can think about um, Mobutu Seseko of Congo. You can think about Mao Zedong of China. You can think about many of these people who they fought against the people who were oppressing them. And when they get into power, become the people who are oppressing their own people as well. Friends, our problems are not fundamentally political, economic, social, legal. Our problems are first and foremost at a very deep and real level. Our problems are spiritual. There is something broken within us as individuals that makes us act out of brokenness and then we have a broken world and a broken society and a broken system. You see, the text tells us that they were slaves. And if there's anything we know about slaves, it is that slaves don't need a leg up. Slaves need to be rescued. Slaves don't need better working conditions for if they had better working conditions, guess what? They were still slaves who were just getting paid in dollars. If they had a better political system, they were just slaves who were represented in government and were still slaves. Slaves don't need a leg up. Slaves need to be rescued. But the problem is, you guessed it, If I am in chains, it means I cannot save myself. The solution, the salvation I require has to come from someone else. It has to come from outside of me. And this is where we see God's gracious initiation, friends, that God is not saying to these people, you guys have to be strong. You guys have to get your act together before I come. God is saying, I will rescue you. 
Fundamentally, the story of Easter is not about a God who looks at us and says, you need better self-improvement programs. You need to get your act together. You need the 12 rules of life and the other 12 rules of life to make sure that your life comes together. No, fundamentally, the story of Easter is about a God who takes on the initiative to save us. To save slaves. Maybe you don't like that. Galatians chapter 4, verse 3 to 8 tells us very briefly. It says that we were enslaved to the elemental spiritual forces of the world. Some of us know that very well. Maybe you're watching online, you know that very well. You know that that thing that initially began as just a sort of innocent pleasure for you has become something that has held you in its grip. You see, what fundamentally defines a slave is that they are driven not where they want to go, but where the master wants them to go. And these things sometimes that we have hoped in, these things that we have indulged in, have driven us past our bus stop. They have taken us to the next destination. And our homes are broken. Lives are lost. Families are being destroyed. Our society is fracturing under the weight of the thing that is broken within us. We're in slavery under the elemental spiritual forces of the world. But the good news, friends, is that God sent his son. Oh, friends, God sent his son. He didn't wait for you to get your act together. He didn't wait for you to sort of have everything figured out. He didn't wait for you to make sure that your theology was right. God sent his son. Friends, the salvation you need is not one that comes from deep within. The salvation you need is one that is external. Well, maybe you are here and you are saying, I am certainly not a slave. Emmanuel, I object to that. My life is going well and everything is working out well for me. You may be right. Your bank account may reflect. Your family may reflect. Your health may reflect. And everything looks well for you on the inside. But some of you know the story of American slavery. You know that there were those who were called the field N-word. Let's replace it with slaves. And those who were called the house slaves. You see, the fundamental difference between the house slaves and the field slaves was that the people who were on the field were suffering a fate that was far worse than the people who were in the house were suffering. The people in the house were enjoying, they were boiling, they had chicken on their rice. They, had, they could go to bed at good times. They didn't have to work round the clock. If you've seen that movie, I forget what it's called now, but the one where... Um, Leonardo DiCaprio, Samuel L. Jackson, and exactly, Django Unchained. You know very, very well what I'm talking about. Your life may be working well on the outside, but guess what? You're still a slave. You need to be rescued. You need to be pulled out and rescued. But if salvation is external, salvation is, salvation's instrument is also unique. And so if you are ever going to sort of carry out this rescue operation, what would you do? What would you include in the plan? Or better yet, what will you use as the instrument to which you would rescue the people that you want to try to save? 
during World War II. World War II had dragged on for so long, and then the Allied forces, particularly the U.S., determined that they wanted to decimate their opponents. And so they wanted to um, tackle the Japanese forces, and so they decided they were going to use a nuclear bomb, the atomic, atomic bomb, and they would drop it on two cities so that they would collapse uh, the economic superstructure of Japan, and then Japan would capitulate and surrender to them. So they dropped the atomic bomb on Hiroshima and Nagasaki, and between 130,000 to somewhere between 230,000 people died. But not only that people died, up till today, there are certain kinds of illnesses that are still being suffered in those two regions as a result of the effects of the nuclear bomb that was dropped there. And so you think, reading this text, that, oh, God is going to do something superb. God is going to, maybe we're going to see an angel that will go from door to door, flying with a sword, and just cutting off heads. What is God going to use? Read the text. Very quiet about it. In fact, the only sort of hint we get is in verses 12 and 13 and somewhere in verse 24 where it says, oh, the destroyer will pass over your houses and God is going to visit everybody's house. But God is silent on the instrument of judgment that he's going to use to inflict his release upon the people of Israel. It is as though the text wants us to know that the emphasis is not so much on how God is going to carry out the judgment. The emphasis is on how God is going to carry out his salvation. And of all the things that God could have used, we see what he's saying about what he will use in verses 3 to 5. He says he will use a lamb. I don't know if you've seen a lamb recently. I know this is Lagos, right? My son saw a chicken last week and he was so happy. Daddy, I saw a chicken. So maybe some of us haven't seen a lamb in a long time. But if you know anything about lambs, there's nothing to look out, look at. They are weak. They are gentle. They can be driven to their death. God says he's going to use a lamb. Okay, doesn't sound particularly smart. Okay, but God, what next? He says, oh, and then the lamb that you're going to kill must be one that will be sufficient for each household. I don't know what the number of each household was. But at least, if we're using Nigerian standards, sort of somewhere between four to six people. God is saying one lamb was going to be sufficient to atone, to cover for the sins of one household. In fact, he goes on to say in, verses, in verse 4 that if your household is so small, you can partner with another household to ensure that you guys come together for this one lamb. Are you kidding, God? We're talking about rescuing us from 430 years of slavery, and you're saying one lamb is going to be sufficient. And he says, yes, one lamb is sufficient. But not just that. He says it has to be a lamb without defects. And that translation says without blemish. It had to be a pure lamb. So it has to be a lamb. This lamb is sufficient to atone for the sins of a household or more. And this lamb is one without defects. And these people obey God and they slaughter this lamb. This unique instrument of salvation. And they are rescued. 
And the, in fact, the way God institutes this story is that it's supposed to be repeated throughout the lives of the people of Israel. They're supposed to orient their lives around this reality. And there would always be one lamb that was sufficient for a household and that had no defects. As you read the story of the Bible again and again and again, you keep seeing the lamb coming, the lamb being slaughtered, the lamb being covering the sins of the people until we get to John chapter 1 verse 29. And we see that this lamb is no longer an animal. This lamb has become a person. John the Baptist looks at a certain person, Jesus Christ, and he says, behold the lamb of God that takes away the sins of the world. That lamb that we saw in the Old Testament, this is what he has been pointing us to all along. The Lamb, Jesus. But I'm fascinated by this reality that one Lamb was sufficient for one household. In fact, if you know the Christian story very well, we celebrate Good Friday every year, not as a continuation of Jesus being killed over and over again, but rather as a reality of what he has done once for all time. Not only is his sufficiency revealed in, in the fact that he alone did it, but his sufficiency is revealed also in the singularity of the moment that he did it. How is that possible? How, what mathematical sense does that make? Some of you know that Every now and then in City Church, we have a seaside, beachside expedition led by our very own Damian Sarah Adiremi. And the instrument of transportation that takes us there is a very unique one. Some have even said, those of us who take that instrument of salvation are toying with our lives. That we're not particularly wise. Perhaps. We just trust Damian Sarah. But every time, what happens as we get to take the ferry? Actually, it's not a ferry. It's, it's a banana boat. Yeah, that was what they call it. It's so low that you have to go that way into it. But every time, right, we have to wear life jackets. And I remember the first time, one of the first times that we got the life jacket. You know, we had, our kids were still, they are small, but they were even much smaller at the time. Um, and so I thought, if I have a life jacket, and Kwalumi has a life jacket, surely these ones we are carrying on our laps do not need a life jacket. <laughs> Actually, it's not that I'm a careless friend. It is that I just, you know, I'll cover them. That was what I thought. But the guys who were there said to us, he says, no, they need a life jacket. Your life jacket cannot cover them. They need their own life jacket. And some of us think that that is what Jesus is. It's a life jacket that has to be split round and round for different sorts of people. But no, Jesus is not like us getting into a banana boat with life jackets. Jesus is like us getting into an elevator. I went with my family somewhere to see their grandparents and they were staying in a hotel and all of us, I went in. My wife went in. My son went in. 
our nanny went in, our daughter went in, and that one elevator carried all of us all the way up. We're going to the feed floor. He didn't break down somewhere along the way. He carried all of us all the way. Friends, that is exactly who Jesus is and more. Jesus is sufficient because the value of his life is far more than anything all of us could put together in all of our lifetimes and a million of them. Jesus is the one sufficient Lamb of God that takes away the sins of the world. Maybe you are still wondering what sense that makes. It makes sense only if the value of that one life is far more than the value of all of our lives put together. Which leads to the fact that he was the Lamb without blemish. He was the lamb that had no defect. There was nothing in him that required him to sort of be, you know, helped along the way. He was the one lamb of God that was spotless, that was perfect, and needed nothing from us. Don't you see, friends, that the Jesus we are gathered here to celebrate this morning, the Jesus whose life we are thankful for and how he atoned for us and how he replaced us, could only do that because he's so much more valuable than all of us put together. Isaiah 53 verse 9, talking about this lamb who becomes the servant of God, says he was assigned a grave with the wicked. There was, he, was with the, he was with the rich in his dead. And though he had done no violence, there was no deceit in his mouth. My son is... I'm trying to remember his age. He's five. He's five. Sorry, babe. He's five. And already I know he's a sinner. I just know it. The kind of things that come out of his mouth, the kind of stories he's able to cook up, the excuses he's able to give for not going to the playground is amazing. If he lives up to be 75, I wonder what he could do with all of his life. Think about it. Jesus never sinned a day in his life. How many hours has it been this morning? Some of us have already done dirty things. We have thought dirty things. By the time it's 11 p.m., we'll have added more to that list of things in just one day. And here is someone who lived all of his, lives on, on, his life on earth and not one day did he sin. How valuable is that lamb? How valuable is that instrument of salvation? Do you see that the only person who can rescue us is one who is so unlike us? One who can bring us out of the pit that we're in, friends. Our salvation is external. We need another. Our salvation's instrument is unique. Only he can accomplish it. But our salvation requires a costly substitute. It requires a costly substitute. And so God's command was for them to give him a lamb, a lamb that had to be in mint condition. And in that day and age, right, it was a, was a mostly agrarian society. The Israelites were, they were farmers. That kind of lamb had value. 
It had a lot of value. And I can imagine somebody who is calculating, we don't have food to eat, we don't have things to feed on. And God is saying we should give away this one thing that is precious, that can fetch us a lot of money. That is precisely what God was asking for. It was a costly sacrifice. God wasn't just asking for something that was casual. God was asking for something that was costly. It was costly to the person letting it go. But it was also costly to the lamb that was laying down his life. Because you see, friends, God was saying that this lamb was going to stand in the stead of the people of Israel, the firstborn children. In other words, the fate that will have befallen the firstborn children is the fate that will have befallen this lamb, this sacrifice that was about to be made. In other words, it was going to be a substitute for the people. It was going to stand in their stead. It was going to be a costly one, but it was also going to be a substitute for them. Except there are two problems. There are two problems. If you've been following the story along very well, you you would have said, Emmanuel, I thought you said these people were slaves. I thought you said that they needed to be rescued. Why is it that they now have to be the ones to um, make a sacrifice? And if you've been following the story along, you'll see that of all the other nine plagues that God has sent on Egypt, Israel hasn't had to bother about any one of them. Every time God sent the, the, the frogs, God sent the gnats, God sent darkness, the livestock was killed, all of those things, Israel didn't have to bother. There was nothing because they were the slaves. And yet in this one instant, God is saying, no, you guys have to do this. Otherwise, you will suffer this same reality as well. Do you see? Friends, that our standing before God is not based on the value of the things that we have suffered. It goes back to that same thing again. The problem is not so much what people have done to us. The problem is that internally, we ourselves are broken and need to be rescued. We ourselves are under the just punishment of God, his wrath in our stead. We ourselves deserve to suffer those things too. And this is why I think you've probably heard that joke. That when I get to heaven, you're preaching to somebody. And they say, when I get to heaven, and God says, why shouldn't I send you to hell? You have done this, you have done that. And I'll tell them, I'm from Nigeria. Ha, ha, ha. God will allow me to go into heaven because I've already been in hell before. First of all, that is not true. Um... If you've read the story of people in Nazi Germany, Jews who suffered under that condition, if anybody deserves to say it, it is those people, not us. But secondly, it is that we live under the false notion, the false reality, that everything that is wrong with the world is outside of us. We never actually see ourselves as people contributing to the mess and to the brokenness as well. We are very quick to blame the president. We are very quick to blame the national official. We are very quick to blame the thugs. We are very quick to blame political actors. We are very quick to blame the economy. But we never actually stop and say that all of these things are happening because of us as individuals. Because I am broken as well. Because I am part of the system. 
this text tells us, no, actually, you may have suffered as a result of what has been going on outside of you, but you have a problem as well. And your problem is not just that bad things are being done against you. Your problem is that you are doing bad things as well. And you are doing bad things not just because you do bad things, but because you are bad as well. You are broken. You need rescue. You are under the just punishment of God for all the things that we have ever done in our lives. But the second problem, and maybe if I move on, is to just say if there are any teenagers here or any young person, do you see that the lamb stood in the place of each person, each firstborn child? Your parents' faith cannot save you. Your parents' relationship with God cannot save you. Your friends' relationship with God cannot save you. Your friends' faith in God cannot save you. It has to be a real, deep, personal relationship with Christ. There has to have been an, an, a turning over of your own life, a, a reckoning that you are a sinner under the just damnation of God and that God is deserving of every inch of justice that you will suffer in away from his presence, but that by committing your heart to Christ, by trusting in Christ, that that reality of an open door of a rescue has been made available to you. But there's a second problem, like I was saying. The second problem is that the substitutes must so closely identify with the one that they're representing. And if you follow the story along, you, yeah, I get. The lamb is perfect, I am not. It is a lamb, I am not. How can this thing atone for my sins? How can this thing preserve me from God's judgment? How can this thing keep me from suffering the just punishment that I am meant to suffer? And maybe as I was even talking about the fact that Jesus is the sinless one, some of us are struggling with that fact. Struggling with the fact that if Jesus is so perfect, it means he cannot identify with me. If Jesus is so perfect, he means that he cannot fully go through, fully understand all the things that I have suffered. And you'll be right to see a problem with that. But the truth, friends, is that the only person who can, if we, are tr- if we are truly in slavery, it means that the only person who can save us is one who is not like us. Who is not in slavery and bondage like we are as well. But it also means that for that to be just, for that to actually happen, for that reality to be true and real and to have meaning for us, that person also has to be like us in some way. That person also has to be closely identified with us. And we see that, friends, in the person of Jesus. That Jesus doesn't just parachute in to save us and give us the key and say, hey, hey that's the door. No, he comes, becomes one of us, closely identifies with us. He becomes a costly substitute, not like the lamb in this passage. 
If Jesus is the Lamb of God, he means that he's the one who then takes on our burdens, our shame, our reproach, all the things we have suffered. And he says, there's going to be an exchange. I'm going to give you my righteousness and I'm going to take on me your sin. And that is exactly what Jesus Christ does. Isaiah 53 verses 3 to 6 tells us that God laid on him not just some of the bad things that we have done, not just a few of them, not just even the most egregious of them, not just the most scandalous of them, God laid on him all of our iniquities, all of our sins, all of our shame, so that this lamb who becomes a costly substitute for us is one who is fully equipped to stand in our stead before God. I want us to read together Mark chapter 15. Verses 3, 33 to 39. And as we read it, I want us to just see yourself in the picture and see that everything that happened to Jesus happened to Jesus because he was suffering in your place. At noon, darkness came over the whole land until three in the afternoon. And at three in the afternoon, Jesus cried out in a loud voice, Eloi, Eloi, lama sabachthani, which means, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? When some of those standing near heard this, they said, listen, he's calling Elijah. Someone ran, filled a sponge with vine vinegar, put it on his staff and offered it to Jesus to drink. Now leave him alone. Let's see if Elijah comes to take him down, he said. With a loud cry, Jesus breathed his last. The curtain of the temple was torn in two from top to bottom. And when the centurion who stood there in front of Jesus saw how he died, he said, surely this man was the son of God. Friends, when Jesus was hanging on the cross for those three hours, he was standing there for you. He was standing there for you. He was hanging there for you. When Jesus was thirsting, he was thirsting for you. So that all of the thirstings in your life that has driven you out from God's presence and has driven you to do other things and seek other things to sort of satisfy you can be fulfilled by him. When Jesus died, he was dying for you so that you would no longer have to die the death that you, you should justly die, but so that you can have the life that he alone gives. The text doesn't tell us in Exodus chapter 12, but I think that there will have been a lot of crying all over Egypt that night. Not just in the house of the Egyptians because of the children that they lost, but also in the house of the Israelites as well. Because they would realize that this faith that the Lamb is suffering. This faith that the lamb has, has befallen the lamb is meant to be mine. Is meant to be mine. 
And as they're hearing the Egyptians crying, they would also have been crying to say that that is how I should have been crying. That is what was meant to be happening to me. But because of this lamb, something different is happening to me. Do you see, friends, that the Israelites had a lamb that was present with them on the table and they were eating it, remembering that this was the lamb that suffered for them. But when we gather, we no longer see a lamb on the table because that lamb has been slaughtered and killed for us, for all of life, for all of eternity. Standing in our stead and standing in our own place, taking on the shame, the reproach, the death that we deserve to die and has given us his life. Salvation requires a costly substitute. But friends, salvation is also life-altering. If you've been reading the passage, it starts in verse 1 with this beautiful reality. He says that God said to the Israelites that this month is going to be the first month of all your months. It's going to be the first month of the year. And we can sort of read that casually and just say, oh, Okay, change of calendar. But don't you see what this means for slaves? The only people who have the luxury of asking what time is it is those who have something to do. What appointment did a slave have? Where were they going? Their life was determined by their master's wish. It's time for you to go to the farm. Yes, sir. It's time for you to go home. Yes, sir. It's time for you to go and carry that thing. Yes, sir. But suddenly, all of a sudden, because of something that God did, their lives are now changed. They now have a new calendar as a result. They are no longer defined by their time in slavery. They are defined now by their time as free people who have been released by God and let go. Maybe some of you are here and you're saying, man, why, why do you Christians pay so much attention to this thing? Why do you guys remember again and again that Jesus died for it? It's because actually Jesus has now altered not just the story of our lives, but the trajectory of our lives as well. There were no longer people who are living in bondage and slavery. We're no longer people who are defined by what we are bound to. We're not people who are defined by what we are freed from. We are free. We are free. But this wasn't just a one-time act. This wasn't just a thing that was sort of meant to move away from. And just remember, oh, on that date in 6,000 BC, God saved us. So the passage says in verses 24 to 25 that every year they were meant to reenact this story and to remember this is what God did for us. Is meant to now become the controlling narrative of their lives to remember that we're people who were once slaves, but now we're people who are free. We're people who were once bound, but now we're people who are liberated. We're people who were once in shackle, but now we can lift our hands in praise and say, glory, hallelujah, amazing grace. How sweet the sound that saved a wretch like me. Their lives were now defined by this reality. And you've been listening to what I've said, or if you've read the story, you can think that actually this entire narrative was just about God showing himself to Pharaoh. It was one big arm wrestling match between Pharaoh and God, and God won. Wow, God is great. God is powerful. That's true. But if that is all you get from the story, actually, you will miss the story because in verse 31, 
after the people of Egypt have been judged and after there has been much crying and wailing, now Pharaoh says to the people of God, now you can go and worship God. Now you can go and worship God. In other words, God was saving them from Egypt, not just for economic benefits, but so that they could now be free to worship him. That passage we just read, Mark chapter 15, Jesus died and when he died, he, he was thirsty. And when he, he thirsted, he got a drink of water and he died and, 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 and he said he was finished. And what happened next? Mark 15, 38 tells us that the curtain of the temple was rent in two. And Mark is trying to see that this thing that Jesus did is the same thing that was the lamb did in Exodus chapter 12. That the lamb died so that God's people could be free so that they could worship him. And now Jesus has died so that we could be free to worship God as well. God brings us out to bring us in. God rescues us from to rescue us to. Do you see? That our lives are now defined by this reality. Not just that our people who have been forgiven, pardon, but people who, are people who have been brought in to the very presence of God. Oh, friends, maybe you're here and you're still perplexed by the weight of your sin. Maybe you're here and you're still under condemnation for all the things that you have done. And maybe some of those things are very, very terrible and very, very bad. But the truth is, friends, that Jesus forgives us and he can forgive you this morning. Not so much for you to go away with a clean slate, but so that you can come into his presence. Salvation is external. We need another one to rescue your salvation's instrument is unique. Only Jesus Christ can do it. Salvation requires a costly substitute. Jesus Christ died as the one sacrifice for us, but salvation is life altering. Our lives are now defined by this new reality that we are brought in to the presence of God. Thanks for listening. If you found this sermon helpful, we hope you join us in the mission of renewing Lagos with the gospel by sharing it, rating this podcast and following us. These actions help us reach more people with the gospel. You can also connect with us on various social media platforms via the handle at City Church Lagos. City Church, love Jesus, love people, love Lagos.